We have been going through the book of Psalms, and uh, we're wrapping that up this week as we've been studying worship in the Psalms the last now two weeks. I uh, want to welcome you here. Uh, it's not normal for us to do responsive readings, but as we went through uh, Psalm 136, we saw pretty clearly that was its intended use, and a good reminder to us of God's enduring love and His faithfulness to His people. I want to invite you to open your Bible today to Psalm 103. We're going to spend most of our time there this morning as we look at praise in the Psalms, God's command in the Psalms to praise Him. Last week we looked at one method or one way in which the Scriptures explained us to worship God. And that was what we called uh, declarative praise, where the people of God declare the deeds of God. So we see what God has done for us and through us and in us, and we praise God for it. And so we recount all of the things He has done for us. For the people of Israel, you even saw in this psalm, it would be to continually go back to the story of how they had been slaves in Egypt, and God had brought them out by His mighty hand and great acts of power, delivering them into a land to be their own possession, where they would live in safety and security in faithfulness to God. And so that story was told and retold over and over again as a declaration of the deeds of God. And so people would praise God for what He had done. And and what we look at today is kind of the second step in in this process. So there's declarative praise, and then today we look at what the theologians call descriptive praise, where the person writing the psalm is praising God, not specifically for what He has done, but the focus shifts towards who He is. Maybe to make... Maybe an analogy that might make sense of that. I'm a big sports fan. Uh, and, and particularly, I love basketball. And there's one thing in basketball that impresses me above other stuff. If you're six foot nine and you can dunk, that's, that's actually not all that impressive to me, right? You're basically lifting your arms and, and slightly jumping, and then it's possible. Now, if you're five foot three, like Muggsy Bogues and some of those guys, Spud Webb, and you can throw down, that's rather impressive. Uh, but at six eight, six nine, it doesn't get much for me. But what really impresses me is the three pointer. Because I've played just enough basketball to know that that far away from the goal, it's very difficult to consistently get the ball in it. And so you see a guy who can just drain them from long range, and that's impressive. And when, the, when March Madness comes through, we watch that, it's amazing. Now, very few of us stop to think about that person shooting the three-pointer. We think about what he's done, and, and we're rather impressed by it, but very few of us step back and go, you know, I wonder how many hours in the gym... He put in like how many reps a week does he take on that shot? And at what age did he start practicing? And why did he practice so intently? I mean, did he have this dad that was a bit of a freak and forced him into it? Or did he just love basketball? Or did he go to the courts because home was horrible and he needed a place to get away? What led this kid to develop this skill? And and how much did it take? And how much effort does it? We don't think about this young man when we're watching basketball, do we? We think about what he's doing. We, we look at the act and it's impressive, but we seldomly stop to think about the person and why he's able to do that and the backstory. And what this shift is away from the, the deeds of God is we begin to look at them over time. Scripture says we can begin to see the nature and character of God and begin to praise him, yes, for what he's done, but more than that, for who he is. To begin to connect the dots between God's activity and his person his personality, his nature. And so what we want to do today is look at examples in the Psalms of praising God for who he is. 
And the Psalms are wonderful in that they show life in this gritty, real format that looks a lot like our lives. If you've been with us through this eight-week series, you've seen that. You've seen the people who write the Psalms, these men who are close to God, who love Him dearly. You've seen them wrestle with doubt. You've seen them struggle with their own sin. You've seen them repenting clearly of their sin and openly of their sin. You've seen them wrestling with despair. You've also seen moments of great joy and hope and faith. And so this is real life people wrestling with what it is to follow God in a sinful world and being honest about it. But in the midst of that and all the suffering and trials and struggles and joy and hope of real life, an honest faith emerges where people worship God as He is and as He has revealed Himself honestly. And so the Psalms are very helpful for us in terms of understanding praise. Psalm 150 verse 2 gives us these two categories of praising God. It says to praise God for His acts of greatness, so for His deeds, declarative praise, and for His acts of power and His surpassing greatness. And so we praise God for what He has done, we also praise Him for who He is, His surpassing greatness. A bit of a resource for you if you're looking to learn more of the nature of God to kind of fuel this desire to praise Him for who He is and who He's revealed Himself to be through Scripture, history, and creation. Uh, there's a book by Arthur Pink called The Nature of God that I would recommend to you. Uh, it's not extremely hard reading, but it is very helpful and will fuel your desire to praise God, kind of open your eyes to who He is through what He has done and what He has revealed Himself to be. So as we begin to jump into this, what we find is that that there's a bigger picture simply than what God has done. And the scriptures are going to guide us into seeing who he is. At times, it's somewhat difficult uh, to distinguish when you're looking at a praise psalm, whether you're looking at this descriptive praise or declarative praise. And you'll see this is when we begin to to read some of these psalms that, that are intent on describing the nature of God, they're going to tell us the story of God. They're going to tell us about what he's done. Conversely, it's kind of hard to, to look at and recount the deeds of God and not begin to say something about who He is. But there's a matter of emphasis that you see. And we looked at some Psalms last week where we find this description of God's deeds prevalent. And we'll look at some today where the big emphasis is His nature. Even in the Psalm we just read, Psalm 136, you find the story of God's deeds being retold, but the theme that takes precedence is God's enduring love. We, we said it over and over again, His love endures forever. His love endures forever. And I love that Psalm because we can't beat it into our brains enough. Right? We didn't say it enough. Some of you guys were like, I don't like responsive readings. We just said His love endures forever about 70 times. It wasn't quite that much, but it maybe felt like it for a few of you. There's a point to that repetition. Because the reality is when you walk out of here today, within probably 24 to 48 hours, something's going to happen that's going to cause you to question whether or not His love endures forever. And so in going back to Psalm 136, it's probably helpful to be reminded over and over and over and over again, His love endures forever. Uh, Back in college, there was a basic rule that you operated under, which was if the teacher or the professor said something several times, you could expect it to be important. You'd probably see it on a test. And so when the scriptures over and over again tell us that God's love endures forever, I would say that that's significant for our spiritual lives and something we need to grab onto in terms of the nature and character of God, that He is an enduringly loving God. And so these attributes that we're going to see are going to help us paint the bigger picture of who God is so that we can rightly desire and love Him. Let's go to Psalm 103 this morning. We're going to read the whole one through. And then we'll stop and look at different sections of it. 
So David writes this psalm for use in the corporate worship of the people. And this is what he says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise His holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always curse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As the Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And the wind blows over it and is gone. And in its place, remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, you servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His works everywhere in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Immediately out of the gates for David, you see that praising God is an all-encompassing passion. Right? Several times he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He says it in verses 1 and 2. He says it in verse 22. Kind of the bookends of this proclamation of praises. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Soul. Now, when we hear that, immediately we start to think about the soul. Because for us, uh, we've kind of maybe grown up in this thing where there's, you know, there's a physical me and there's like a spiritual me. And maybe I have a heart and a soul because there's a song called Heart and Soul. And, may, and we start to kind of categorize, right? Like, here's physical me. Uh, here's my soul. Here's my spirit. And, and we start to make these categories. That's not what David's saying at all. Da- David's using a Hebrew word. Nefesh, which is not referring to a chunk of him or a component of him. It's referring to all of him. That's why in verse 1 he then defines what he means. He uses a parallel statement. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Other translations that you might be familiar with this verse say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. That probably better captures the essence of what he's saying. Is that all of me desires to praise God. Not a piece of me, not a part of me, not me on Sunday, or me at Wednesday night with youth group, or me at life group, but me, all of me. This is an all-encompassing passion for David, to praise God. And so it says, Oh, that I would bless the Lord and praise Him with all that I have, with my inmost being, with the depths of my soul, with everything that I've got, that I would praise Him. And he ends the psalm with the same thing. So we want to draw something out immediately before we look at the attributes of God displayed in this psalm. Is that David is passionate about what he's about to say. This isn't a theological essay. This isn't a doctrinal test so he could go, look, we believe the right things about God. 
This isn't some intellectual thing where he's going to recite some facts about God that he learned in Sunday school. It's okay to learn them in Sunday school, but not to be emotionally affected by it is not okay. And so David isn't going to just say, I know these things to be true. I've observed them scientifically. And now I'm going to write an essay describing the nature of God. What we're about to see to David is significant and delightful to him. He loves it. And with his whole being, he desires to praise God for these attributes. And so immediately we've got to do a bit of a gut check before we go into this text any further and say, are we here this morning to hear a list of attributes about God, like a theological periodic table in which we're going to dissect him and lay him open and make some observations in a disimpassioned state? Or are we going to be like the scriptures encourage us in this moment where we see God rightly for who he is and our soul leaps for joy? I want to pray for us as we jump into that because I fear that it's very easy for us to go there. Father God, I pray right now as we jump into your word, as we see your nature and your attributes unfolded in Psalm 103, that you would touch our hearts to be like David so that everything within us desires to seek him, to know him, and to worship him. That we would lift up your son in all things and that Jesus would be exalted as the only one in heaven and earth worthy of our glory. And we pray this, that by your spirit you would do it because on our own all we can do is read the text and try to figure something out unless your spirit illuminates it, unless he convicts us of our sin, he shows us our need for you and your beauty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you want to jump into these attributes. The first thing we see out of the gates in Psalm 103, verse 6, is that the Lord is... He gives us three things immediately. He says he's just and righteous and also kind of hints that he is strong in his power. In verse 6, he said, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Now, a couple things out of the gates here. One, the word righteousness is often used in in varying ways. If you're a surfer, you might use righteous slightly different than the most of us. But uh, it means that what God does is always right. It's morally upright and pure. God doesn't have mixed motives. He doesn't do things that are okay, but then this is kind of not. That everything God does is right and pure and good, and he's entirely just. But it also kind of hints at God's power because it doesn't say that God is righteous in intent. That's not what Psalm 103 verse 6 says. What it tells us is that he works righteousness and justice for his people. So God is righteous in his, in his moral character, but it also kind of goes on to his eternal power that not only does he exist in this way as being pure and holy, but that he has the power to bring righteousness and justice into reality for his people. And so there's a proclamation, yes, of his moral goodness, but also his surpassing greatness and power. So out of the gates, the scriptures tell us that God is good and that God is great. Those are the two areas of doubt for most of us. We either doubt God's kind intention towards us or we doubt his ability to put it into effect when we struggle. And so immediately the psalm's going to clear up that mess and tell us that God is good and he has the power not only will. He's not a loving but impotent God. He is an almighty, powerful God who works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. I would also note, because we're here, although it's a side note, is that God is on the side of the oppressed. Those who are suffering, God is on their side. God is near to the brokenhearted. And as a church and as a people, that should affect our hearts as well, so that we become 
on the side of the oppressed as well. We also see that God is eternal. Go to Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, and the wind blows over it, and it is gone. And in its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him, and His righteousness is with their children's children. So, he draws a comparison here. I guess you'd call that a contrast. He says, man is like this. Man man is like grass. He's here, and he's gone, and he's forgotten. Now, that's kind of hard for us to remember, because with the exception of this, this kind of drought we're in, most of the time our grass stays put, right? Right now, my yard looks a little spotty. But you think about it, if you're in the desert, and your average rainfall, I don't know, is like three inches a year. If you spend much time in the desert, this is how it works. If rain occurs in the desert, within about 48 hours, you're going to see beautiful flowers and grass kind of spring up out of the desert. But when the heat comes on it, it will die quickly and be gone. And if you were to come back maybe a week or two later, you would see no trace of anything. And so the psalm tells us that, that we, us, that we're made from dust and that we're weak and that we're here one day and gone the next. But that God is from everlasting to everlasting. This is an interesting language. He doesn't say that God began at one point and will be here forever. What he says is that God is from everlasting, eternity past, to everlasting, eternity future. So when we say that God is eternal, we don't mean that that He'll be here forever. What we mean is that God exists over and above time. That time is a part of creation that has no constraints on God. If you want an example of that, you go to Joshua chapter 10. When they're fighting the, the opposing army and Joshua prays for God to stop the sun and give him more time. And so God actually pauses the rotation of the planet, keeps its gravitational force in place so that the battle can can be ended. Now, some people, skeptics are going to look at that and say, well, if he had done that, if he had stopped the the sun, first of all, is it moving? It just feels like it is across the horizon. So if he had stopped the earth from spinning gravitation, God can do what he wants with his creation. It doesn't dismiss the miracle of God to see the science behind it. Rather, it expounds on it because we begin to understand how much power God exerted with no exhaustion to Himself at all in order to bring righteousness and justice for His people. So God is eternal, not that He was in existence forever ago, but that He exists outside of time. He's entirely eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, we can't even wrap our minds around it. God is eternal. Now I want to ask you forgiveness. We're going to backtrack to the beginning of Psalm 103. Back to verse 1. Probably the biggest and most predominant attribute of God mentioned in the Scriptures is His holiness. And we see this in verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, and my inmost being, praise His holy name. So God's name is holy. In, all, in the Psalms, you'll see God's name described as holy. You'll see the mountain described as holy in which, from which God spoke. You'll find the temple described as holy. You'll find God's people described as holy. Now, these things aren't holy in and of themselves. They're holy because God is. 
So to say God's holy name is to revere Him and, and to rejoice in His goodness. And holiness is this, guys, is that God is infinitely perfect. All of His moral perfections exist in infinity. This is wild. God is entirely merciful without any, any diminishing of that at, at any moment. He is entirely just. He is entirely loving. He is eternal. He is righteous. He is all-powerful and almighty. And He's all of these things and even more at once without any of them edging into the other. And in that, with no pollution, no mixed motive, no wrong inclination, God is entirely different from us. Because with me and my attributes, it's kind of like the wheel of fortune. You're going to get what you're going to get. Sometimes you're going to get the bad side, and I've got to work and repent and pray, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will help me overcome those downsides and not be harsh in those moments. But, but you're getting one or the other, guys. And they all exist within limitation. right? Like I'm merciful to a point. I'm just to a point. I'm loving to a point. I'm wrathful to a point. But a lot of times these things, there's sin kind of mixed in there. They're, they're pollution that, that kind of pervades me. And even when there's not pollution, there's restriction and limitation. And God exists with all these moral perfections without pollution or restriction. And because of that, He's entirely different from us. And when the Scripture says that God is holy, the big idea is that because of His perfection, He is other from us. He is separate from His creation because of His perfection. So God's name is holy. Isaiah 46, 9 says it so wonderfully when God proclaims to the prophet, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. But this infinitely holy God looks on our sinful state and He's forgiving and compassionate. Look at verses 2 through 5. He's compassionate and good to us. It says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. This is important. A couple things. One, God is forgiving. God looks upon our sin and He's forgiving. Now the New Testament begins to unpack how that forgiveness works and what it would tell us is that we stand under God's wrath and judgment because of our sin. That in our sin, God looks upon us and we deserve to be judged because He's holy and just. He must judge sin. And He looks upon us in need of that. And rather than pouring it out upon sinful man, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to take on the form of man so that man could in fact pay the debt for sin. And so he pours it out on Jesus, which at that point he is able to forgive us. And so when we say that God's forgiving, we can't just gloss over that. The blood of Jesus, the death of Christ, is the means by which we are forgiven. And so God is forgiving. He, the scriptures say that he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, which is infinite. Their directions moving opposite from one another. It's not even measurable. God says your sin is gone. It's removed, not only forgiven by the blood of Christ, but cleansed as well. So that when God looks upon those who have trusted in Jesus, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ that he credited to us, that he gave to us. And so God is compassionate and forgiving. And more than just forgiveness, it says that God gives good things to His children. He's compassionate to them. He satisfies their longings with good things. And we can go for satisfaction for longings in all sorts of places, but when we go to God, the Scriptures say those deepest longings, God supplies us the ultimate thing we were looking for. 
Some of you guys know exactly what it is to have some deep longing, some need within you that you just couldn't fill no matter how much you pursued it. This kind of insatiable thing. I I heard some conversations from different uh, big celebrities about how they keep making hits, how they keep, you know, stay on top. And Madonna talked a little bit about um, her constant need to recreate herself. She says, because no matter how many hits, no matter how many number one CDs, no matter how many best-selling albums, no matter how many gold or platinum albums, I always feel like I'm not good enough. And so I just keep doing the next thing. And so for her, she's got this kind of void that she's trying to fill with some kind of worldly success or the praise of other people or fame or prominence or wealth. And she says, no matter what, even this is a non-believer guy's going, no matter what I do, it doesn't work. The problem is instead of looking outside of herself, she just keeps plugging on. Right, in this rat race that you know doesn't win. So I can be more successful, so I can feel good about myself, so other people will like me, so I can be more successful. And it just keeps going. And in the end, you're still empty and hollow. And God says, when you go to Him, those deepest longings He satisfies, but not a temporary fix with trash, but with what you need. God says, I will forgive and be good and compassionate to my people. God is good. And God is almighty. If you look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and all his king and his kingdom rules over all. So God is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. He does his bidding, no hand can stay him. No one can thwart the plan of God or even delay it or stop it. God is almighty and all-powerful and none is like Him. His kingdom rules over all. God isn't some little teenage boy vying for the affections of people like a ninth grader asking a girl to dance with Him. Often we present God in that way when we share the gospel, that, that He's just pleading... Look, He is the righteous King of the universe. Yes, He's loving. Yes, He's compassionate. Yes, He comes to us graciously. But let's not kind of confuse His gracious humility towards us as some lack of power or authority. God reigns over all creation. He does as He pleases. He is almighty. Now, for those who don't know Him, who don't rejoice in His character, that is a frightening statement. And it should be frightening. I want to be very clear. The scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 2 that if you do not know Christ, you are objects of God's wrath. Almighty God who rules over heaven and earth is against you because of your sin. Not because he is wrong, not because he is wicked or because he is evil, but precisely because he is pure and holy and you are not. To say that God is almighty ruler of the universe to those who have not been redeemed by faith in Christ ought to be frightening. But for those who have placed their trust in Jesus, who know that God's kind intention is towards them, as Romans 8 says, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. For those who know that, it is the most delightful truth. Now, our position doesn't change the fact that it's true. But we have an opportunity today to either cower in fear because we are under God's judgment or to accept His compassion towards us, trusting in Christ as our means of forgiveness and our only hope of heaven and a relationship with God. And and then all of a sudden, that becomes a joyful thing. 
We begin to delight in His almighty power. We begin to delight in His strength and sovereignty. And that's the big thing, guys. There are more attributes of God. We could go on and on. The book, The the Nature of God that I recommended, has infinitely more. But what you see in Psalm 103 is a really good snapshot of David, of the men of old who love God dearly, looking at the nature of God. Yes, they're going to talk some about what he's done because you, you can't entirely separate them. But to get, begin to proclaim the attributes of God and delight in them. Not to list them and go, yeah, that's the way it is. But to delight in them. I want to tell you a personal story of this kind of conversion from seeing an attribute as something that's, yeah, that's the way it is, to really loving it. Um, my dad is one of the hardest working men I've ever known. Um, I've never known anyone that just hustle and work hard like my dad. He, he worked in the oil field on the production and the things, uh, drilling oil wells and all sorts of stuff uh, down around Bay City. When he get home, uh, he'd play football with us. He'd, he'd fix fences. He'd feed horses. He'd do whatever needed to be done. My dad was, was a hardworking guy. And I'm going to be honest, when you're ra- growing up in a house with a guy who works his tail off, you're expected to work your tail off. That's how it works. You ever work for a workaholic? It's not fun. So when you work in a home with a father that's got a strong work ethic, he's got an expectation for his sons to have a strong work ethic. When I was in fourth grade, we moved further out of town and bought more land on a little farm site. And my dad, it wasn't big enough to really be a farm. And when the banker asked my dad, what are you trying to raise out there? You've only got like 40 acres. He said, I'm trying to raise blisters on my kids' hands. Right? Hard work. You didn't ever say, I'm bored at my dad's house. Because I'm bored meant, here's some post hole diggers. Not the thing that's gas powered. Right? All day. You didn't say that. Now, I hated the fact that my dad was hardworking as a kid. I hated it. I had friends whose dad came home from work. They sat on the couch. They watched football all the I mean, just relaxed. The kids were expected to do anything. And I dreamed one day of living in a home like that. And then I got in high school. And I'm going to tell you a few things that happened between uh, in junior high. My dad, uh, in 1992, the day Bill Clinton was elected, that doesn't have anything to do with him, um, was, uh, was let go from his job at a major oil company. They, they went downsizing everybody that had more than 17 years on the job and uh, to cut expenses. And so that happened. And uh, my dad went from having a great job to hustling. He got a job working for a lease service, which is like the oil field version of a temp agency. You didn't want to hire your own backhoe operator. You sent out one of these guys. And so my dad's job was to run the crew as well as get the job. So he's a salesman and kind of running things. And he would leave the house every morning before the sun came up, about 5.30. He was in his truck leaving, and he never got home before 6.30 for about eight years. And we were at this tiny high school, and for us, even a district football game was a 200-mile drive. My dad never missed a ball game. Never missed one. Never missed a one-act play or tennis meet or track meet. The man worked 80-hour weeks and made it to every event that we did. He put the miles on the truck. He ran himself ragged because he loved us and he worked hard. And at 17, I appreciated that my dad worked hard. I begin to put up with this attribute, right? And I begin to love it. That's what happens when we begin to see God. We begin to not only just see these attributes and go, yeah, I can list that. I learned that in Sunday school. I saw, but we begin to delight in Him. Because we know Him, because now He's our Father. 
And the difference between seeing them and maybe scouring at them and delighting in them is the work of the Holy Spirit where He transforms us and makes us the child of God. And so the Psalms and David dearly love the nature of God. And for us as God's people, we are too as well. The big idea I want you to go home from this with is that the gospel is not you get out of hell. The gospel is you get God. God is the gospel. He gives us Himself. More than any gift or any one thing that He hands us with salvation, He hands us the gift of knowing Him. Of being His child. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to see this in verse 18. Second Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. I want you to think about this. The big picture of salvation is that we were distant from God because of our sin. We were His enemies and He has reconciled us and brought us near to Him. If you read the book of Revelation in chapter 21, the big picture is that God comes down from heaven and He says, and I will live with them and dwell with them and be their God and they will be my people and I will be their God. That's the big idea is that salvation isn't for people who don't want to go to hell. No one wants to go to hell. Anyone who believes it's true doesn't want to be there. Salvation is for people that see Jesus died on the cross, risen again, and they love it, and they love God because of it. That's what regeneration, that's what the Holy Spirit does when He transforms the heart and wakes this dead heart and gives us, the Scripture says, take this heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh that's softened to, that beats with love for God. We've been reconciled to Him. And here's the deal, guys, is that all of this praising of God for who He is is worth it because God is deserving of our praise. We praise all sorts of things. We we praise our jobs, our careers. We praise all sorts of things. We worship in glory and all sorts of things that are not worthy of our glory when God alone is. There are two billion Muslims in our world right now who give alms to the poor, who say prayers five times a day, who will go to Mecca all so that they can please Muhammad and some false god that they've invented gets all of their glory when only Jesus is worthy of it. And so we send missionaries to the Middle East because we believe that Jesus is worthy of of their glory and their worship and he doesn't get it. There's 500 million Buddhists throughout Asia following Buddhist regulations and, and Buddhist rules and worshiping Buddha who is not worthy of their glory. And so we send missionaries there to Buddhist populations to proclaim Jesus died and rose again because Jesus alone is worthy of their praise. There are 850 million secular atheists throughout the West and Eastern Europe and communist countries. And we're about to send some missionaries to land in the Czech Republic because there's 850 million atheists, most of us who will never hear the gospel. Romans 10 says, if someone doesn't go and they worship their stuff and it's not worthy of it only Jesus is there are one billion Hindus in India and throughout parts of Asia who worship an untold number of gods when Jesus alone is worthy of it there are hundreds and thousands of animistic tribes in Africa who worship their ancestors and animals when Jesus alone is worthy of their praise And the Psalms would look at this and tell us that Jesus alone is exalted above the heavens and the earth. 
And His splendor is above it all. That's what the Psalms would proclaim, is that Jesus alone, the Father alone, the Spirit alone, the true God of the Bible, are worthy of all praise and worship. And presently they don't get it. Throughout hundreds and thousands, over 7,000 people groups that do not worship Jesus because they have not heard the Gospel. Every bit of the soul of every man should rightly worship God. And we know not everyone's going to turn. But God's desire is that people from every nation and tongue would praise Him. A couple things that struck me that I think our church has got to fix. We didn't create the problem, but we've got to fix it. We've got to do something. Talking to some of the folks that went to Ethiopia with our high school kids, one of the things they were encouraged to do, they, they couldn't share the gospel with these Ethiopian kids because they don't speak Amharic, so what are they going to do? Uh, they served, they, they got to work. You guys will hear more about it later. But one of the things that I want to maybe give you just a glimpse into is that every night as the Ethiopian leaders would share the gospel with these kids that had come to soccer camp from Muslim communities, that, that this may be the only time they hear the gospel our students would go out, sneak up next to their cabin, and sit there and pray the whole time for these kids. Just pray, just plead with the Father for mercy that He, by His Holy Spirit, would soften their hearts to hear the gospel message, to delight in Jesus and experience salvation and hope in Him. You want to know something that was interesting? In preparing for that, one of the Ethiopian leaders told them, you better pray like you've never prayed before because most of these kids, no one's ever prayed for. Most of these children, no one's ever lifted up, pleading with God to save them, to be merciful, to send His Holy Spirit into their soul to receive the God. No one has ever prayed for them. Now, I pray for my kids every day, pray over them every night, and part of that is for the Holy Spirit to work within them, to delight in Jesus and serve Him with a lifetime. And I can't imagine a child that no one has lifted up before the throne of our good and gracious King. And then it hit me, listen one of the ladies in our church talking about an opportunity to plug into one of the local elementaries. There are children all over in Tomball in the same condition. Kids that have fallen through the cracks in our own backyards. That no one has told anything about Jesus. No one has fought with and wrestled with in prayer for. we got to do something about that. Because Jesus is worthy of their glory. He's worthy of it. And he desires to save. We read in Philippians 2 as we sang that Jesus is the name, has the name above every name. And that at the name of Jesus every tongue would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And that's the goal of this church. It should be the goal of our lives. And we do that because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has died. He's taken the full penalty, the full weight of our sin. It's as if um, God were holding back His wrath and, and all of a sudden just the, the dam broke and the waters flooded out and rather than landing on us, they landed on Christ. And the full wrath of God poured out on Him. As His body was broken for our sin and pierced and battered as his blood was shed and poured out cleansing us we were redeemed the scriptures say a transaction took place that for those of us who would believe that that 
our sin was laid upon him and that he credited to us his righteousness, his goodness, his spotless perfection, so that when God sees us in spite of our sin, we've been cleansed and God sees us as holy and perfect and pleasing. In 1 Corinthians, there's instruction given to the church about celebrating this meal, about the reminder of what Christ has done for us. This is what the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night He was betrayed took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in My blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of Me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Therefore, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread or drinks the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. 1 Corinthians 11 proclaims to us the death of of Jesus, and implicit in there is his resurrection because we do this proclaiming it until he returns. So we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus and our hope in his return, and we do this remembering his goodness so we can look back at God's justice in that sin required penalty and his mercy by pouring it out on Jesus who did not deserve it so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we rejoice in his justice and his mercy and his grace today. I want us to pray and ask the gentleman that will be handing out the elements to come forward. Father God, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for your grace and your justice. We thank you for the beauty of the cross where your son paid the full penalty of our sin. And we pray that you would touch our hearts in such a way that we worship you rightly. That we don't just look at a list of your attributes and say, yeah, that's true. That we don't just come to the Lord's table and say, yeah, Jesus died and rose again and he's coming. But that we look at that and we delight in it. That we love it and that we would love you above all things. I pray that you would not allow us to be cold-hearted towards you. That you would do whatever is necessary to soften us to a point of hoping and delighting in you. We pray that now as we reflect on our own hearts and our own condition before you, that your spirit would be active so that we could see our sin. So that we could repent and turn to you. And rejoice in your goodness and remember your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.